Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today we'll talk again about the fighting in Sudan. What hope is there of stopping a slide into all-out war? This is what Khartoum has looked like for more than a week. Gunshots ringing out in residential areas, fighter jets thundering across apartment blocks and an international airport engulfed in flames. Despite the declaration of a ceasefire over the weekend, there was no guarantee it would hold. So we're now into the second week of fighting between Sudan's two rival military factions. On the 15th of April, tensions between the Sudanese army, led by General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, and the Rapid Support Forces, or the RSF, boiled over. The RSFs, led by Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo or Hemeti, it's a tens of thousands strong paramilitary force that grew out of the Janjaweed militias that some years ago fought a genocidal campaign against rebels in Sudan's western Darfur region. In 2019, so a few years ago, after months of protests against then-Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir, the military and the RSF had clubbed together to oust Bashir. They then agreed to share power with civilians, but in 2021, Borkhan al-Khameti led another coup, and since then, Borkhan has been Sudan's leader. In December, the military agreed to hand over power to civilians. That was supposed to happen in April, but the two men fell out over security sector reform, basically Hemeti's refusal to integrate his forces into the army command. We've also continued to engage directly with General Burhan and General Hemeti to press them to extend and expand the Eid ceasefire to a sustainable cessation of hostilities that prevents further violence and upholds humanitarian obligations. The Sudanese people are not giving up on their aspirations for a secure, free and democratic future. Neither will we. That was U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken talking about U.S. efforts to stop the fighting. Just a few days ago, Burhan and Hameti agreed to a ceasefire for the Muslim holiday Eid, but that's held only partially. Fighting's ongoing. The worst of it seems to be taking place in the capital, Khartoum, with street-to-street battles, millions of Sudanese caught in the crossfire, many hiding in their houses and running out of supplies. It's easy to see how this could escalate into a longer confrontation that sucks in others, including former rebels from the country's earlier wars, potentially outside actors, that would be even more devastating for Sudan and the region. So for more background on the two men, how the war started, the dispute at its core, please do listen to last week's episode with our Sudan team. This week, we're going to talk to Mariti Mutiga, who regular listeners will know is Crisis Group's Africa director. We're going to talk about where things stand and prospects for getting the two men to take a step back. Mariti, welcome back on. Thanks, Richard. Good to be back. So, Mariti, let's start then where we usually do. Do you want to say a little bit about what's happening in Khartoum and around the country? First, I have to emphasize, Richard, what an enormous shock this was for so many Sudanese. They certainly saw the signs. They saw the rapid support forces militia deploying in their tens of thousands in Khartoum. They saw the armored personnel carriers from the army showing up at checkpoints. But nobody really expected, as the Norwegian ambassador put it, for the parties to drive at full speed over the edge of the cliff. It's a really frightening, shocking situation. I saw the weather forecast today, 42 degree heat in Khartoum, which is about seasonal, but still it's very, very hot. People without electricity in their homes, running short of water, exchanging texts about what the best route out of their neighborhoods is. This war was always feared, but very unexpected for many residents, especially of the capital, Khartoum, a city of nearly 10 million. And so there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of worry. What's the balance of play? 
the army obviously has the advantage in the air they have superior artillery but the rsf has deployed in very large numbers we hear an estimate of 50000 troops and essentially we are seeing a stalemate some analysts had expected the army to prevail quite quickly they've not really advanced as much as they might have hoped essentially we are seeing a grim difficult stalemate urban warfare street fighting in the middle of a major city and it's very very worrying And Mauriti, I mean, we're recording this lunchtime on Wednesday in Nairobi and Brussels. There's been this ceasefire announced over Eid, this humanitarian pause in essence. I mean, to what degree has that actually held? So it's ebbed and flowed. We've seen that the ceasefires, which you know, you have to commend all the parties that are really working hard to try and get a pause in the fighting, but they've been applied very unevenly. We've seen in several cases the RSF accepting the ceasefires, the army keeping silent. Eventually, the army also declared that they had accepted it, but then within hours they've broken down. They've offered some relief because people have been able to escape from their homes, trapped as they are. in the middle of all this fighting but in essence each of the ceasefires some have lasted at least a couple of hours but all of them have broken down which obviously like in many conflicts tells us that the parties believe that they can gain the upper hand if not win outright and then a more concerning element is whether the leaders of these two forces have the capacity to get their forces to stop fighting that's worrying on the army side i think there's a mistake sometimes to view the sudanese armed forces as an homogeneous organization it's quite heterogeneous it has various strands of opinion but also there's a question about how how much of a degree of command and control does hemeti have over the various units of the rsf deployed across the city in various neighborhoods So no, the ceasefires have been promising, but unfortunately, all of them have cruelly um, dissipated within hours. I want to come in a moment, Mariti, to those efforts to push the parties towards a ceasefire. What those look like, who's involved, but the fighting in Khartoum. I mean, from what I understand, the RSF going into residential areas in some places, commandeering houses, hiding among civilians, making it very difficult to identify and fight them. and the army itself is shelling it's bombing some of the RSF warehouses supply lines which are also in residential areas it's really a fight at the moment that is taking place sort of street to street in places where people live in khartoum i think the way to look at this is that nobody really has seen fighting in a major urban center in the horn of africa despite the horn of africa being one of the most unstable parts of the continent only mogadishu in fact has witnessed this level of fighting uh, street to street so i don't think anybody has a coherent plan for how to take forward a battle in um, in the middle of a city who knows of how many people some say 7 million some say 10 million and so we are seeing a very disorderly confrontation we are seeing the momentum swing back and forth we are sw- seeing major installations uh, change hands every other day and and so it's it's very disorderly but i think the focus really has to be on the civilians caught in the middle of this very unexpected intense fighting in the middle of the city and trying to escape none of the parties to be honest really seems to know what they are doing And Mariti, do we have a sense of how many Sudanese are fleeing the country? 
I think, Richard, a couple of months ago, the world was transfixed by the disorderly exit of many players from um, Kabul in Afghanistan. I think this is on an order of magnitude even much larger. It's a much, much bigger city. It's one where, uh, unlike in Kabul, where people are you know, half expecting it, this one was entirely unexpected by much of the population. So everybody is fleeing in whichever direction they can. There are some land corridors that have emerged towards Egypt. Some 250,000 people have apparently gone into Chad, which is already a very poor and troubled country. Others have flown into uh, South Sudan, another very poor and unstable country. Thousands are stuck at the border in Ethiopia. And it's really very disorderly. It's very frightening to the extent that people are just boarding buses, trying to take whatever means they can to flee. A lot of the diplomats obviously had the advantage of being able to be flown out. But for thousands and thousands of Sudanese and other foreigners, it's really just about trying to board whichever bus for the 10 hours or so journey to whichever border that you can get to. And so, Mariti, last week we got a bit of background from the team on Hameti and his rapid support forces. But it does seem that maybe he's more open to a ceasefire than the army. Sure, there's the command and control issues you talked about. that Maybe he wouldn't be able to actually hold his forces at bay. But, I mean, he does seem more open. I mean, do you get a sense of why that is? So... I think just to circle back and see what the roots of this conflict are, and the Sudan team did an excellent job on the podcast last week. I'd really encourage listeners uh, to go back and listen. I think we have to remember that Sudan is one of the most coup-prone countries in the world. It has had a long history of governments not lasting very long, repeatedly being toppled by the army. But then the long-serving autocrat Omar al-Bashir essentially laid mines around the country's security sector by keeping them very divided. It was not just that he brought this uh, militia group, the Rapid Support Forces, up from the embers of the war in Darfur, but he also divided this armed forces against the intelligence, the intelligence against the police, armed each of them, in a sense, trying to prevent a coup by any of them. Um, So you have a really divided, fragmented security force sector. Uh, The absolute top priority for the army, and especially for elements within the army that really recall the old prestigious Uh, Sudanese armed forces that were the symbol of the state. It's an absolute core demand that the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, must disband and that Hemeti should suffer a complete defeat. In this sense, then, for the army, this is really existential. They perceive that their prestige is on the line, their capacity to control the assets which they have cornered, the economic resources which the army has always enjoyed, is on the line. And Hemeti has come in from the periphery, as the Sudanese like to frame it, which is very telling in its own sense. But he's come to Khartoum to try and obviously take a share, not just of political power, but of economic power. So this is a battle between two sides with very diametrically opposed positions. Hemeti perceives that A negotiation essentially brings him to the table in a way that preserves the status quo, in a way that preserves him as a major political and military actor. But for the military, they don't really want to sit down with him. They want to destroy him. But if they can't destroy him, they want to gain decisively the upper hand before any talks. 
And Mariti, maybe just worth flagging something you said or implied, this, I guess, snobbery among the traditional Nile elites that dominate Sudan's politics, dominate the military towards people in the country's peripheries. And the contrast, in fact, between the RSF fighters, many of whom are from the country's far-flung regions. But on the army side, Mariti, how much do you sense that Al-Burhan is himself driving this? I mean, and how much is it within his officer corps or the generals around him? I mean, we talked a bit last week about how during the talks with civilians that preceded this outbreak of war, he sometimes seemed more open to compromise, but then would go back and, and sort of wouldn't be able to sell it within the army. I mean, how much is that a factor? So, Richard, we have to remember that General Burhan was in many ways a compromise candidate. He was essentially picked by the army, partly because nobody had heard of him. He was quite a senior officer, but he was perceived as non-threatening and acceptable to the street because they had no idea who he was. Let's recall that shortly after Omar al-Bashir was toppled, he was replaced by essentially his long-serving deputy, Ahmed ibn Uf, and which was a signal that the military essentially wanted to get rid of Bashir, but preserve the military in power. Ahmed ibn Uf lasted less than 24 hours. The joke at that time was that he lasted less than as famous Sudanese deodorant, uh, Bintel Sudan. So Burhan came because he wasn't seen as a particularly strong figure. Unfortunately, that has played out not to the advantage of this transition because on all sides, there's been a lot of fragmentation. On the civilian side, there's been a lot of contestation for power, which you expect after a long protest movement that is leaderless, that really then, you know, will be open for seeing who will be in charge when you, you come to power. Burhan himself has had to contend with a lot of strands within the military, some asserting the historic prestige and power of the military, some of them with a more Islamist bent, some of them with various actors supporting them from outside the country. Burhan has not been a particularly strong leader. He's not been able to deliver on the various pledges that he makes sometimes in negotiations. And now it's not entirely clear who's calling the shots. It's really a source of anxiety because you'd hope that you avoid fragmentation on all sides, that you end this quickly enough so that you can have a deal that sticks and that potentially can end this uh, nightmare for Sudan quickly. And aren't the generals, as you say, whether it's Borhan, whether it's other generals, the army command more broadly, as you say, they're seemingly determined to either defeat Hemeti or at least change the balance so Hameti's paramilitaries, this parallel forces, is less of a threat. I mean, as time goes by, isn't the army likely to have the edge? I mean, it's better supply lines. It's the army, so it's probably more able to get more weapons, to purchase more weapons, more ammunition. Or, or I mean, uh, Mauricio, I remember we had a similar discussion in Ethiopia where people said the Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, the Ethiopian army, couldn't win against the Tigrayans. And sure enough, at one point, the Tigrayans actually were marching on Addis Ababa, the capital, but then Abbey purchased, restocked, I mean, purchased drones and other weapons from Turkey, from the Emirates, and and then in the end pushed the Tigrayans back and uh, in essence defeated them and forced them to accept this peace deal. I mean, is that, is something like that? I mean, if this goes on for longer in Sudan, is something like that not feasible? Or at least do you think that's the army's calculation? Richard, that's a tough one. And prediction is a mug's game in the Horn of Africa, as we've seen over the last couple of years. 
But this is an army that was systematically weakened by Omar al-Bashir going back to 1999 when he fell out with his uh, Islamist mentor Hassan al-Turabi. He then perceived the army as the most likely source of a coup against him. He systematically especially weakened its infantry. He outsourced the fighting forces out into places like Darfur where the rapid support forces are uh, emerged from. And so it's an army that has suffered systematic degradation at the hands of its own commander-in-chief. Can they win? Of course, certainly, you know, any of the parties potentially can win. The army is, is fighting on home turf. They potentially will have the advantage of resupply, as you said. But at what cost? I'm afraid this will come at cost which is just unbearable for the people of Sudan. Um, we have to note that, yes, there's urban warfare in the middle of a very densely populated city, which, as we had last week, has been the natural place of refuge where Sudanese come uh, to run away from the various conflicts and insurgencies that have racked the countryside. So the cost of a grinding war in which one party or the other tries to gain the decisive advantage will be very high. And that's why at crisis group and elsewhere, you know, the focus now is absolutely on trying to get to a ceasefire, however imperfect, just because the effort of trying to gain a military advantage, which we haven't seen materializing over the last two weeks, um, will be just too high. And so, Mariti, as you say, a lot of people pushing for a ceasefire. Do you want to talk a bit about those efforts? We heard US Secretary of State Antony Blinken up top. I mean, Washington clearly involved, African capitals, the Gulf. Who's been leading the mediation efforts? So, Richard, it's almost a case of who is not trying to mediate in this conflict. As we know, Sudan is a really important country. It has uh, borders with seven countries, some of them very unstable. It's the the link between the Sahel, Middle East and North Africa and the Horn of Africa. It abuts the Red Sea. It is sandwiched between Egypt and Ethiopia, two of the three most populous countries on the continent. It really is a significant actor. So now we see multiple efforts at mediation. We've seen offers um, uh, by the Kenyans, the Djiboutians, the South Sudanese, all regional actors. The African Union has tried to step in as well. But by far the most significant efforts at mediation are coming from the U.S. The Americans have been working the phones. They seem to be able to speak to both sides. The Gulf actors are also naturally interested in this. Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, they all have connections with various actors. Egypt is an important neighbor as well. I think what you'll need in the end is concerted action to try and persuade the parties. You need coordination. I think the U.S. has taken the lead, which makes a lot of sense given uh, leverage is too strong a word, but given its connections with the various actors and its capacity to link all the various mediation efforts. So yes, there's a lot of effort going on. I think it needs to be coordinated, but it certainly needs to be encouraged and to continue. And uh, Borhan and Hermeti, they answer their phones when Washington calls, when Riyadh calls? Yes, we certainly hear that they are reachable. They have all engaged and at various points given their word that they would accept a ceasefire. There's been even quiet talk of potentially direct talks in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. And so, you know, there is definitely an effort to try and bring the parties together. But 
none of the efforts, sadly, over the last couple of weeks has managed to properly uh, bring an end to the fighting. And in some ways, we talked about this a little bit last week. In some ways, it's a bit different to some of the other conflicts that we've seen in the Horn of Africa, but especially in other Arab countries over the last decade. I mean, if you think back to Syria, Yemen, Libya, or the crisis in Egypt, foreign involvement a couple of years ago in Somalia too, when you look at regional involvement in those crises, it tended to play out along the big fault lines. So either the rivalry between Iran on the one hand, Saudi Arabia and its allies on the other, or the rivalry reflecting the split within the Gulf Cooperation Council. So Saudi Arabia, Emirates, Egypt on one hand, Qatar and Turkey on the other. And really those regional rivalries reinforced sort of zero-sum competition in those crises, fueled the conflicts, made them harder to resolve. But this time around, you know, in Sudan, it does seem so far different. I mean, first, those rivalries have themselves calmed a bit. You know, the mood in the Middle East is now sort of toward greater restraint. But also the regional powers that are most involved here, not the only ones, but the ones that are most involved that have the closest ties to the main protagonists. So the Saudis, the Emirates and Egypt, they're all really part of the same regional bloc. And the Saudis themselves... You know, they have ties to both Borhan and Hemeti. Plus, for the Saudis, you know, a full-scale war just across the Red Sea in, in Sudan with all the dangers that would bring You know, at a time when Riyadh has been looking to calm things down in Yemen to its south. I mean, it's got Iraq in the north. I mean, does it really want a collapsed state just sort of a stone's throw across the Red Sea? So maybe the geopolitics of this crisis of you know Sudan's war is a little bit less difficult and maybe... At least the regional politics aren't lined up in such a difficult way. Richard, that's a good overall picture. I think Omar al-Bashir for sure was one of the victims of the Gulf Cooperation Council uh, dispute. For many, many years, as we know, he tried to play um, various parties against each other. He maintained his friendship with the Qataris and Turks, uh, with whom he was quite comfortable with because he was a bit Islamist-leaning. He also took money from the Saudis and the Emiratis and very transactionally, he therefore sent troops into Yemen, mainly recruited by Hemeti. He, at the same time, never really completely cut ties with the Iranians. And he was the sort of guy that stayed in power, essentially, by playing a balancing act and playing off rivals uh, against each other. In the end, this juggling act became impossible when these parties became so rivalrous that he was uh, forced to choose, they didn't trust him, and by most accounts, the Saudis and the Emiratis looked the other way or even might have encouraged the coup um, that toppled him. So we are now in this strange context where nobody really wants state failure in Sudan, nobody wants to see a breakdown of order in such an important, large, heavily populated, diverse country. I think for now, this is the rare conflict which even at the UN Security Council for once, the Russians, the Chinese, the Americans are all on the same page. The Africans very strongly so. Um, many in the Gulf certainly want to see a stability, however you define it. But there's no question that each of them has a favorite in this battle. And the danger is that the longer it lasts, the greater the risk that they will try and tip the scales in favor of one or the other. Richie, can I also ask, there's also the Russians, and I feel we have to ask about this because it's sort of foremost in the minds of, of Western officials at the moment. So you have this now, now notorious private security company, Wagner, very close to the Kremlin. You know, that is a lens through which Western capitals will 
be looking at what's happening in Sudan. Hermeti has these ties to Wagner related to his gold mining in Darfur, but really some questions about whether Wagner are actually likely to get more involved in Sudan. I think the Wagner element is quite complex because obviously we have to be cautious about the breathless Western media reporting, which is understandable, uh, and we have to be careful. Um, But I think I see it in two ways. One is that on the positive side, Russia actually, despite its checkered record, rarely supports rebellions on the continent of Africa. They tend to support the authorities, they tend to support mostly at the moment um, fairly security-minded authoritarian uh, uh, figures. Rarely do they stock rebellions. Maybe Libya might be uh, the notable. That's Mariti, the support for the sort of Libyan wannabe strongman Halifa Haftar, who for years was opposed to what was the internationally recognised government. But I mean, Chad as well, maybe? I mean, there's some rumours that Wagner close to some of the armed groups in the south. In Chad, it's more um, conjecture and reportage, but we haven't seen concrete evidence that they are really backing any other party. They certainly want to cause a nuisance for the French. They certainly, um, the government is quite aligned to the French, and they have been picking off government after government that is aligned um, with Paris. But we haven't seen concrete evidence of them supporting rebellions. But on the other hand, Wagner has shown a real capacity to exploit weaknesses in state power to exploit vacuums of governance and who knows how they might benefit from the unrest in the Sahel banding together with potential disorder in Sudan. So I think it's it's one of those where we wait to see. I think that's again emphasizes the need to end this quickly because the longer it lasts, the greater the risk that outside actors may try to exploit it. And Marita, if you look back a, a few years to where things were in the Horn, really just two or three years ago, what you had, all the hope that came with the ouster of Bashir, these very sort of iconic images of Sudanese protesters and, you know, civilians at least sharing power with Borhan and Hameti. Plus, you had this new young prime minister in Ethiopia, Abiy, making peace with Eritrea, it seemed at the time, winning the Nobel Peace Prize embarking on these reforms, promising to rule in a very different way. And obviously, these transitions away from one party or one man rule, particularly in places where, as in Sudan, the, you know, Bashir deliberately hollowed out some of the institutions to keep himself safe, to sort of preserve his own rule. Obviously, it's nothing new that these sort of transitions are, are very difficult, but it does seem today a particularly dispiriting picture. It's an exceedingly grim picture and really we have to cast our eyes back to, yes, a couple of years ago and, for example, starting in Sudan. Let's remember how unlikely it seemed that the protest movement would succeed in toppling Bashir. Um, I remember we interviewed for a Sudan expert, I think in 2018, and consistently we asked them, what do you think is Bashir's future? At that time, he was trying to run again in 2020. All of them thought that he would stay in office, except um, one candidate with wonderful sense of humor said that he's doing quite well for a man falling off the roof. So the odds for the protesters were very long. They were such a sustained, diverse peaceful protest movement with so many women at the front. We must not forget what an inspiring moment that was, and we must not really give up, even in the terrible circumstances, about rekindling that hope. Why did it go so badly? I think a couple of things. One, of course, primarily due to internal dynamics, but 
I think there was a big failure, especially when you had a new prime minister, Abdallah Hamdok, coming to office, an economist, a technocrat, widely respected. There was a failure from the outside to gamble, to come in with the substantial external support that would have allowed them to deliver the economic dividends that then would have kept the street happy and would have made it much harder for the military to credibly come into play. In fact, what happened was that you had inflation running at about 70% when Bashir uh, left power. It was almost treble a couple of years later, partly because of uh, financial reforms that were necessary, but mainly because there wasn't external support. The Trump administration didn't quickly lift the state sponsor of terrorism um, designation as expected. And Mariti, that was because the Trump administration at the time wanted to leverage the lifting of the state sponsor of terrorism designation as a way to get Sudan to normalize relations with Israel, or it was more complicated than that? So it was basically a lack of political will. I remember one of our board members, Mo Ibrahim, who's from Sudan himself, expressed this frustration in a meeting we had where he said, if you can impose sanctions by tweet, then surely you can lift them by tweet as well. Um, so there was a lack of political will. And then they they suddenly miraculously found the will when the Abraham Accords uh, came up and they lifted the, the, the state sponsor of terrorism designation, but that was very late. Could the internal actors have done things differently? Certainly. I think the civilians, when they reflect on this, and many Sudanese are doing this, I think they'll reflect that they remained very divided. They hamstrung Hamdok because he couldn't make decisions because of all the divisions on the side of the resistance committees and others. I think there was a bit of a risk in labeling too many by a broad brush. And so I think in both Ethiopia and in Sudan, there was a potential to build coalitions with some of the actors, you know, say the Islamists, some of the military actors. You know, let's remember that a lot of low and, 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 and mid-ranking officers backed the protests. In fact, I remember when we were following this day by day, sometimes the protesters would take refuge behind uh, uh, soldiers because the police were very brutal and the RSF, but the soldiers were protecting the protesters. So there was a lot of failures. Ultimately, the blame for this lies with the military, with the rapid support forces. But in my view, especially delivering on the economic front, especially remembering that this was about bread and not just freedom and justice, although those were really important. I think that might have kept the soldiers in the barracks a bit longer, maybe allowed a flowering of greater capacity for the civilians to move forward. But no, that we, we missed a lot of opportunities. I mean, in some ways, it's similar to revolutions in you know the previous decade, the, the revolutions in the Arab world. The way that they're portrayed in Western capitals is that it's much more political and civil rights, whereas in fact, you know, it's the social and economic side as well. I mean, it's it's as much about food and fuel as it is about voting or justice, and yet the food and fuel bit gets much less time and response. I don't know what you think about that, but the other part of that, I guess, it's I guess it's related in some ways, is that. Usually the successful transitions like this, I mean, if you think of other parts of the world, have been those that have been have been more pacted. There have been sort of arrangements between the old guard and new actors that it's about consensus. And, you know, obviously, accountability has its place as well. But in a fraught transition where you're trying to meet people's expectations while keep the the old guard that can still cause a lot of troubles, new armed actors that are emerging, trying to keep them all on board. It is about, as you say, coalition building. I don't know what you think of that in the case of Sudan and, and to some degree Ethiopia as well. 
Those are good points, Richard. And I remember one of the most thrilling aspects of this was these transitions were really unexpected because by custom, when people fight their way to power, they rarely give it up, especially on the continent, through peaceful means. You, you tend to maybe have a civil war in which one side is defeated and then they leave power. So one of the reasons we were so thrilled by the change peaceful, relatively peaceful change of government in Ethiopia first and then in Sudan was because you had people that regarded themselves as revolutionaries essentially giving up power peacefully. But yes, I think those transitions then needed to be pacted, they needed to be negotiated, and they needed to, you, you needed to have much more of a bargain. And I think that that didn't really happen in both cases. Of course, this is a bit controversial because um, you can see the desire by the people that took to the streets, took huge risks, and therefore toppled um, the old order. Um, you, you can see why they wanted to start uh, afresh. And I, I was listening to a Tunisian lady the other day um, just saying that they wanted to get rid of the whole old order, the whole old ruling party. But then they realized almost the whole of society had become gradually implicated in it. You know, teachers were party members and, you know, policemen and whatnot. So, yes, there, there was scope for a bit more bargaining. I mean, the counter argument to the idea that it wasn't pacted in Sudan was that in reality, that's exactly what everyone was trying to do. Right. I mean, they were trying to keep the military on board, try to keep them in the tent and get them to first share power and then hand over power to civilians. It wasn't a big case of sort of retribution. In fact, the army was, you know, because it had this support from the Gulf, because it was getting money from neighbors that, you know, you couldn't sideline it. The counter argument would be that actually those actors, the, the military committee were, there was too much tiptoeing around their power. So, I mean, it's a valid argument. And of course, this is especially strongly felt within Sudanese civil society that they should have been cast to one side, that absolutely they should have had no role um, uh, in the governance of, of, of Sudan going forward. I think, though, you know, the reality was that they were the men with guns. I think when I say it wasn't really pacted, it was that I think the real fears of these actors, which was essentially transitional justice and essentially giving up their economic packs, I think those were not really on the table for negotiation in a way that might have persuaded them, um, you know, to, to step aside. And so, you know, they continued to perceive a big risk for themselves if there was a genuine transition. Maybe there needed to be a plainer conversation about that. And, and so you'll notice that the first thing they did when they staged the coup in 2021 was, was to disband what was called the Dismantling Committee, which was supposed to look at all the money they had stolen and, uh, and, and, and recover it. And, and so those issues weren't really negotiated in a plain way that just basically, bluntly, uh, needed to confront the fact that they had a lot at stake and they perceived they were going to lose it. That doesn't mean mollycoddling them. That doesn't mean uh, looking beyond the fact that many of them have a lot of blood on their hands, but it just means a colder approach to some of these transitions that maybe puts everything on the table in a much plainer way. And Mariti, the economic side, dealing with the cost of staples, rising inflation, particularly after the Ukraine war? 
on the economic rights. I think he's completely right. I think there was a total failure on that front. I think it's a lesson to be drawn, especially in a context where, uh, you know, people keep having this rhetoric about autocracy versus democracy. Um, but when you have an inspiring uh, transition, as we saw in Sudan, then you need to back it up with real support. That didn't happen. It was more rhetorical than real. And so, Mariti, um, I mean, what do those lessons mean then if there is a ceasefire and you can get the two men back to talks and also talks with civilians? Again, you know, I think obviously lots of challenges to that happening. I mean, this does have a lot of the makings of a slide into, into war. I mean, this is obviously why we're so worried, why we're covering it on successive weeks of the podcast. But let's say they, you know, they do get back to talks. The core problem Hermeti's refusal to integrate his forces into the army, that would remain, right? I mean, you still have these two roughly evenly matched forces who disagree with one another on sort of the core issue, you know, plus is either going to want to hand over power, real power to civilians. Obviously, the ceasefire is the priority, stopping the violence as quickly as possible. But even if you can get to those talks, what are some of the ways of overcoming some of these obstacles? As you know, Richard, of course, at Crisis Group, we tend to encourage a ceasefire, however imperfect, and especially in a context like this where there's so much suffering. Yes, absolutely, the goal has to be a quick ceasefire. But without question, the question that you've just uh, raised will then follow very rapidly. Um, we have to look this very crudely. It might depend uh, on who holds the upper hand. Uh, for the moment, it doesn't appear that anybody has secured that, but that will be a germane issue, which um, you know we have to be blunt and, and consider that it will figure in the negotiations. What might the way forward be? I would say that I think there needs to be some plain talking. I think Hemeti needs to recognize that you can't really have a functional state and an aspiring democracy where you have a private militia essentially challenging state institutions. And so the goal of merging his force with the Sudanese armed forces is one really that can't be negotiable if you want a viable uh, state to emerge out of this chaos. And Mariti, what would happen to Hemeti himself if he did merge his rapid support forces under the army command. Presumably, he doesn't want to do this until it's clear what his place in that civilian-controlled Sudan is. Right? I mean, his power stems from his command of the rapid support forces. And what essentially you're asking him to do is give up his main source of power before his future place in the country is secured. So these are some of the impossible uh, dilemmas we've been grappling with. I think there have been a couple of suggestions. One that he found favorable to him was that there would be two parallel lines of reporting to a civilian head of state that you would have the rapid support forces and the Sudanese armed forces essentially reporting directly to a commander at the top. Obviously, that doesn't achieve the goal of merging the forces. It's a very difficult question. Nobody has an easy answer. I'm sure they would have adopted a solution if it existed, but potentially you need a fudge. Potentially you could um, keep him as some sort of vice chief of staff. Um, that will be a hard pill to swallow for the Sudanese armed forces. But I think given that 
this time we've seen the war come to Khartoum, which is something that so many in Khartoum never really expected. I think the elites in the army also have to re recognize that there will be political consequences for this war. And in a certain way, the subtle demand from not just Hemeti, but many others outside the Nile Valley is that the Sudanese armed forces really need to re re reflect the face of the nation and not just of the traditional centers of power in Khartoum. So while Hemeti needs to offer this important concession of merging his forces, and again, I take your point that it's, it's probably a big aspiration, but really for Sudan's stability, it's one that needs to be implemented. And we have to remember that the parties accepted this. It's just that they couldn't agree on the timing. I think the armed forces also have to give a concession, which is that really in substance the army needs reform and they need therefore to accept that they need to absorb not just Hemeti's forces but so many others and and so it's a nightmarish situation no perfect solution very very difficult answers but i think we must not forget that the prospect of civilians returning to power remains real because both Hemeti and Burhan, both their forces will emerge out of this conflict with no credit at all. It's encouraging that the Sudanese population almost in unison has rejected this war. None of them will really be viable leaders because none of them have the military capacity to just impose some sort of strongman dictatorship. And so maybe the solution might lie in some sort of fudge which has the civilians in charge and then a gradual absorption of the various forces into the armed forces, however imperfect that solution is. So at the end of the day, the ceasefire obviously needs to come fast. We see a situation where hospitals, for example, have been turned into battlefields. Several have been closed. We hear figures up to 70% of the hospitals in Khartoum shut down. A lot of people now will start running out of supplies in their homes, as I said, without electricity and water. It's a very grave humanitarian crisis. I think the ceasefire has to come first and then, of course, very quickly a conversation about what comes next. Marichi, thanks so much for coming on again. Thank you. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Sudan on our website, crisisgroup.org. Also check out our sister podcast, The Horn, which also covers Sudan this week. Alan Boswell, the host who was on Hold Your Fire last week, he's talking to one of the top officials in the former government of Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub, and thanks, of course, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org, or you can write to me directly, outward at crisisgroup.org. If you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, if you like the show, please, as ever, say something nice about us, leave us a positive rating or review, and I very much hope that you'll all join us again next week.